Please stand with us as we begin our service. Adam, would you lead us in prayer, please? Thank you, Holy Father, for this day. Trinity, you know, 457, 457. 
I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me, my household, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our forefathers up out of Egypt, from that land of slavery, and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We, too, will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses that we pleased. <coughs> now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under an oak near a holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words that the Lord has said. It will be witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. May the Lord add his blessing to this holy and inspired scripture.
text is found in the book of Joshua, chapter 24. After a number of weeks dealing special messages on Christmas and so forth, we return now to our study that we interrupted, Believers Under Trial. And in our last study of this series, we considered the pain of sudden loss. We discovered that the best made plans that we can make are doomed for frustration. Why is that? Because we're not omniscient. We do not know the future events that God has coming into our lives. The wicked make plans too, but God frustrates their evil intent, and so we are spared much intentional heartache. God's plan for his people includes surprises, that is, sudden loss. Job never planned for the trouble that came his way, but it happened just the same. He handled it well, even though he had no knowledge of what God was doing. We dealt with the fact that God helps us during our time of sudden loss. Not by exemption. You're not going to get away from all trials. But God is going to sustain you by his grace. Secondly, he's able to bring good out of that which is bad. Thirdly, whatever your experience of sudden loss, Christ will make up for it. If you were to lose all that you had, as did Job, but still knew God as Savior, you would be re really rich for all of eternity. Asaph's conclusion, one of the psalm writers, is appropriate. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. Boy, what a good perspective to have on life. This world is passing away. Jesus said it's going to pass away. But his truth, his word, will remain forever. Well, today's subject is not a pleasant one, but it is a necessary one. And I'm going to be talking about the pain of wrong choices. Oh, no! You mean we make wrong choices? Yes, we make wrong choices, even at today's. So let us come to the Lord and seek his enablement. Holy Father, send your spirit to teach us the truth of the scriptures. Yes, we have the book before us. We can open the pages and read in the book. But to understand the spiritual significance of the words here, we need the enlightenment of your spirit. The very person who inspired these scriptures, the one who led Joshua, in this case, and others that were going to quote the Psalms, to write the very words and thoughts that you intended to be said. Thus we believe that the Bible is more than the writings of men. It is the very word of God himself. And we thank you for it. 
We also thank you for preserving it because historically there have been many times when nations and despots have tried to burn the Bible literally out of existence. But your word remains. And we thank you for that. Bless in this hour. Be with our sickies. We ask that you will watch over them. There's a lot that are out sick. We pray your healing power in Christ's name. Okay, we're looking today at the pain of wrong choices. First thing you'll note in your bulletin outline is that God's sovereignty does not negate human choice. Because we're Christians who believe in such biblical doctrines as uh, the election of God's people, predestination, the immutable degrees of God, which we've been learning about in the adult class, we are sometimes, sometimes accused of teaching that mankind cannot and does not make choices commensurate with free will. Nothing could be further from the truth and as when we understand freedom in its biblical context. If, for example, freedom is defined as I can do what I want to do when I want to do, and no one can stop me, not even God, then yes, that definition is absurd. Since we are claiming for ourselves as creatures what only can be attributed to God as Creator and Lord. Such is a form of sinful idolatry, because in such, men are attributing to themselves what God alone has the power to do. We could say it this way. None of our choices in life are free from the knowledge of, the direction of, the consequence of God Almighty. We have not seen, or we are seeing in recent days, rather, a lot of uh, politicians and others asserting their authority, what they're going to do, and how independent they think they are of, of the events of life all contrary to reality. The psalmist describes the abuse of the wicked and more importantly, their philosophy on why they do the things they do. Here's what he says. They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, O Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the alien. They murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob pays no attention. Take heed, you senseless ones among the people. Does he who implanted the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Reading scripture. Does he who teach man who teaches man lack knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man. He knows that they are few. Psalm 94, verses 4 and 5. Another psalm, Psalm 10, has a similar theme with a slightly different twist. 
Speaking of the wicked, the psalmist says, he says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and I'll never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil, evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless, and he drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. And he says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face. He never sees. <clears throat> Psalm 10, verse 6 and 5. There are two accusations pre presented here against God in this psalm. Number one, God did see, but he has forgotten what he saw, so I'm safe. And accusation number two, God covers his face, and in so doing, he chooses not to see, and in that case, I'm still safe. Who in their right mind would strip God of those attributes which define him? Omnipresence. God is everywhere you are or can be. <coughs> Omniscience. God knows everything there is to know about everything that can be known. Psalm 39, the psalmist addressed both false accusations. Here's what he writes. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Psalm 139, verse 6, verse 6. And the psalmist in this psalm even postulates several scenarios to drive home his point. What about distance? Think about that. Maybe I can outdistance myself from God. Maybe I can go so fast away, so far away, that I leave God in the dust and He can't find me. Here's what the psalmist said. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand. Psalm 139, verses 17. Think of it this way. Every direction of the compass only results in God being there. 
That's what we mean by omnipresent. All you stereo buffs know what omnidirectional sound means. It's sound that fills your whole room because you have multiple speakers everywhere bringing out the sound. Well, omnipresent means that God is everywhere present. Unlike us, He is not spatially confined. What about darkness? Hmm. We normally think of darkness as being high. It obscures our sight, doesn't it? If I say, surely the darkness is going to hide me, and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Psalm 139, verse 11 and 12. This is a statement of God's omniscience. Another one of those omnivores. God always sees. He always knows. Even the blackest darkness cannot impair his vision or his perception. He knows all. He sees all. If these things are true of God, if his attributes are supernatural, as the Bible indicates, how is it that there are people who say such things of God as we ever read? Well, God doesn't see. Or God doesn't hear. Or God doesn't know. The psalmist says, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take covenant, my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction. You cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil. You harms your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent and you thought I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you use you to your face. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me. And he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. All that is on fifth. Idolatry, folks, is more subtle than choosing a stump of teak wood and carving out a little statuette from it. Idolatry is to reduce God to lesser things, to created things, including the creature man. Paul addresses this in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look 
like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles and other It is utter arrogance and ignorance that would define free choices made by men as free from the knowledge and free from the oversight of God. No man, no woman can choose with that kind of freedom. Such freedom of choice belongs exclusively to God. But with that said, it is nonetheless true that mankind makes free choices in this life. We all do. We choose what time in the morning we will get up. We choose what time we're going to go to bed. We choose the clothes we will wear, the food we will eat, the car we will drive, the neighborhood in which we will live. We choose our friends. We choose the principles upon which we will conduct our lives. We make hundreds of choices on a daily basis from the minute decisions involving when we will get a haircut to the major issues of life, our philosophy of right and wrong, of good and evil, what we value, what we disdain. We are people making choices. And these choices are made freely by which I mean that no one twists your arm and no one forces you to violate your ethics or your principles. If a despot were to apply torture to try to coerce you to comply to his will, you would still have the choice to give in to him or to die for what you believe, which I might say many have done, rather than caving in. Those are our free choices. Now it is just because we are free in our choices that number two there, God holds us accountable for wrong choices. Our text this morning is a, reco a record of Joshua's swan song. He's about to die, but before he does, he gives a farewell address on spiritual values. That's a good way to die, if you are given the opportunity by God. After listing all the ways in which God had aided Israel in conquering Canaan and taking possession of land and cities, vineyards, farms, and so on, <coughs> all the things for which they had not labored, Joshua says in verse 14, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river. That's a reference to Euphrates. Serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers serve for the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. What Joshua is doing here is he's drawing a clear line in the sand. And he lays out two options for the people. In one, they can refuse to throw away their traditional idols, those idol concepts of God, that never once help them reach the promised land. Or, option number two, they along with Joshua and his household can serve Jehovah 
one who fought for them and delivered their enemies into their hands. Well, the people hardly affirmed what Joshua had said. God had delivered their foes into their hands. He had set the Israelites free from the Egyptian taskmasters. Marvelous wonders and signs they did see that protected the Israelites in their exodus and in their journeys. That said and that acknowledged, the Israelites were nonetheless at a crossroads in their lives. They had to choose that day whom they would serve, whether idols or the true God of heaven. So they affirmed, verse 16, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We find that Joshua erected a stone pillar saying this, it will be a witness against you if you're untrue to your God. Verse 27. And to their credit, verse 31 says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. None of this lasted, however. Judges 2, verse 10 and following says, After the whole generation had gathered to their fathers, that is, after they died off, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. What is that? That's parental and pastoral failures. That's what that is. Their teachers didn't continue to teach them their history. It's been said, if you don't learn history, you are destined to repeat it. And so we read in verses 10 and following, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him. Twice in that text, the saying they forsook him. And they served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Judges 2, verse 10 through 13. You probably know that the period of the judges was a roller coaster ride between the high point of serving God, the low points of going back into a doctrine. That's the way they did it. Just like that. We read, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge. And he saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But, when the judge died, I'm still reading scripture, the people turned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. Following other gods, serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. Joshua 2, verse 18. And 19. It's clear that these were free will choices made by the people. They had godly judges who would lead them and warn them against apostasy, but they forsook God anyway. And God attributed this to their evil practices, as he says. He preferred those over the rigor of living holy lives before them. And he attributed it to their stubborn ways, something else God said. 
So there's this personal resistance to what God required from his chosen people and their disposition to do their own thing. In fact, this is the very synopsis that the author of the book of Judges gives in the very last verse of the book in which he writes, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. Judges 21, verse 24. They want, didn't want to be bossed around by godly judges, nor by God himself. They wanted to choose their own path, even if their own path was evil. Leave us alone, we'll judge ourselves. We don't need judges. We'll take care of it. So here then, we begin, brethren, to see a biblical definition of freedom of choice in men that is characterized by who and what they are by nature. We may fairly speak of people exercising their free will as long as we speak of the freedom that is complementary to their nature. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, what is their nature? I can ask it this way. What is our nature as found in creation? How does the Bible depict human nature since Adam's sin? Well, at the very least, we are creatures with a fallen nature, aren't we? We are not as Adam once was. That is sinless. We are as Adam harmed us. Sinners by birth and sinners by practice. So what, if any, are the restrictions or limitations of our nature when it comes to the things of God? Is our human nature attuned to God? Can it respond aright to the commands of God? Can it choose righteousness over evil? Singularity of worship towards God instead of idolatry? Listen to Paul's confession, and I think if you're honest, you'll also see that this is your confession. Paul says, I know, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Romans 7, verse 8. Paul is saying that in his sinful nature, untouched by God, he cannot choose good or do good as defined by God. His nature barricades him from going contrary to his nature. In Romans 8, verse 8, he says, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Jesus said something similar to the religious teachers of his day. He said, make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, verse 33. He's saying they are evil by nature. And that being so, they cannot say anything good. 
their speech can only reflect their nature as the same with us. And as it is with speech, so it is with every spiritual exercise that God demands of us. Paul says, nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. So let me ask, from a biblical point of view, is it a good thing for people to believe God when He speaks and obey Him when He commands? Is it a good thing to repent of sin, including idle concepts of God? Is it a good thing to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, sent to be the Savior of sinners? The answer to those three questions is yes, yes, yes. All these things are good. Okay. Then why don't people follow through and do these good things? They do not choose to do things which are outside the realm of their sinful nature. In other words, no one can make free will choices beyond their natural abilities. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, writes Paul, and the spirit that is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Galatians 5, verse 17. Or again, in Ephesians 2, verse 3, all of us also live among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires, following its thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of God's work. Ephesians 2, verse God holds us accountable for wrong choices. But apart from God, guess what? We only make wrong choices. And that's why we are objects of God's wrath. As was Israel. What then is the remedy for a nature that only makes sinful choices? We're in a quandary. Well, God has to change our nature. What a terrible predicament to be in, to have the ability of making free will choices, but then to have our wills irrevocably locked into a sinful nature. That means that all my free will choices will result in choosing things that offend God, defy God, oppose God, and cater to the lusts of my heart and the rebellion of my worldly faith. God put it this way. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? You all know that Ethiopians are black-skinned people. So God uses them in his example. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Answer, no. <laughs> Not ever. Well, what's the point? He goes on. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. What is he saying? Jeremiah 23, 13, verse 23. He is saying that evil is ingrained in our nature, and that's what it produces. Paul writes it this way, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that now works in those who are disobedient. 
Ephesians 2, the first two verses. The spiritually dead follow the prince of this world who is saved. So long as we are dead in spirit towards God, our free will choices will always opt for things that oppose God's will. And that results in judgment. So what's the solution? <coughs> if this is the nature we have, and it is, how are we ever going to make right choices? Well, we read it earlier from Jesus. Here's what he said. Make a tree good. Make it good. And its fruit will be good. Matthew 12, verse 9. Jesus knew, and we should too, that commands such as repent of your sin or believe and be saved, they fall on deaf ears. Worse, on impotent hearts because, as he said to the Pharisees, you, how can you who are evil do anything good? How can you? In other words, where's the ability? The tree has to be made good first. Then from the root will come good choices. And that's what Paul says when you were dead in your sins. And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Colossians 2, verse 13. The ability to make good and saving free will choices begins at the moment that God makes the tree good. That is, at the time that He grants a sinner a new nature. Now understand what this means. We therefore do not choose Christ and receive a new nature. Rather, we receive a new nature and then choose Christ. Freely based on a nature that is born new. This being so, when I appeal to sinners to forsake their sin and trust in Jesus, atoning work on the cross, the appeal is not made to their ability, but to their responsibility. Say, so what do you mean? Well, they are responsible to God, to love Him, to obey Him, to submit to Him, and so on, because God is their Creator. He is the Lord of the universe. Through sin, mankind has lost his ability to obey. Why? Because sin is of their own doing. But they're still responsible. God has not lost his ability to command because the sinner has lost his ability to obey. You say, well, that, boy, that sounds like sinners are completely at the mercy of God. Yeah. Light bulb. That's you and me. That's where we are. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
First Peter and Romans. Verse 21, through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Not in your choice, but in God and his grace. Secondly, sinful people make wrong choices and they suffer for them. But there's hope. There is hope and recovery in Christ. I wish we could say that uh, as new creatures in God, all our free will choices fall on the side of righteousness. That'd be neat. But it's not so. And the reason it's not so is that our old nature has been in the forefront so long that it has trained our hearts and minds to choose sin automatically. We don't think about it. What we have to think about is doing righteousness. Sin comes naturally, can I put it that way? It comes automatically. Righteousness comes through careful thought, careful planning, deliberate intent. Listen to Paul's exhortation. He says, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Romans 13, verse 12. Yes, he puts it this way. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What this verse is saying, what these verses are saying is that righteous living takes some planning. It doesn't just happen. Even for the believer who has God's spirit indwelling in You can either plan to do evil, as the wicked do all the time, or you can plan to do right, as God commands of his holy people. But I will take some plan. So which is it going to be? If you plan and execute sinful choices, yes, you can do that but then you will suffer the consequences of God's chastening. And let me tell you, it's going to be unpleasant. Believers have a choice. Paul says, I beat my body and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7. And he's, he's talking about the competition of life, in which many are in the race, hoping to win the prize, or fighting the boxing match, hoping to come out on top, to use another one of his sport analogies. But without discipline, without a plan for righteousness, with what a sloppy, wishy-washy effort to live for God, you lose, and the prize slips through your hands. <clears throat> In the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul reiterates what happened to Israel as God's people. 
He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. You're talking about the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, <coughs> see all these blessings, they, together, 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 together. They all, they all, they all, they all. And I'm still reading scripture. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. Or we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Or we should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. First Corinthians 2. If God judges his professing people in these ways, what will happen to you who have no connection with God whatsoever? Sobering. Peter writes it this way, it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse Peter 4, verse 17. It's back to this patently true principle of Scripture. We reap what we sow. Make sure that the gospel seed takes root in your heart and sprouts into a life of faith and love for God so that you might see God in joy and blessing. How wonderful that Joshua put it to his people that day. You know, you got some choices to make. I know you got idols in your tents. Know you believe in the idols of the Amorites in whose land we are living. But as for me and my house, I'm going to choose the Lord. What about you? What's your choice? You have a decision to make. Choose with righteous judgment, not sinful hearts. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us in our choices. Lord, give us, grant us that peace and that joy of sins for you. They will be forgiven if we choose Christ. Open our eyes.
eyes, open our hearts to see. That our choices can net us that which is good or that which is evil. And they can bring us joy, salvation in Christ, or they can bring us judgment, pain and suffering because of making wrong choices. Grant to us a heart. Grant to us a nature that loves God. We don't choose to get that nature. You give us that nature that we might choose. God's righteous. I pray that you will do that for us. Then you get all the glory for our salvation. We can't even say, oh, but I chose. Well, I had to believe. Well, we did. But God gave us the choice and God granted us the faith. So he should get the glory. For struggling hearts today, Pray that you will open their eyes to see and to believe with the glory of Jesus and for their good. We pray these things. Amen. <coughs> Our closing hymn is from Trinity. That's the red hymn, number 466. 466.
Jesus Christ.